Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe All Show podcast. Today on the pod, from hockey to gymnastics, we speak to the man leading the fight for a federal inquiry into widespread abuse in Canadian sport. And from bad to worse, we look at the Vancouver Connects weekend masterclass on how not to fire an employee. And we speak to the organizers of Seth Fest as Vancouverites celebrate the films of local legend Seth Rogen. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Dozens of Canadian and global sports scholars have joined the chorus in calling for an independent inquiry into sports in Canada, saying Canadian athletes deserve better. Uh, they sent a letter today to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Uh, the group is called Scholars Against Abuse in Canadian uh, Sport, and they're urgently asking for an inquiry because of the widespread uh, widespread reports of sexual, physical, and psychological abuse of athletes throughout the nation's sports system. And that's not just what we hear from Hockey Canada, folks. We're talking about just your kids uh, and how they're taught to play soccer, to play hockey, whatever sport they're involved. They're looking for a similar type of inquiry that we had called the Dublin Inquiry in 1989 looking into uh, doping. Uh, so there's been significant call for now, a call for an inquiry. Now, the educator educator's letter that was sent today was spearheaded by a, a gentleman by the name of Mac Ross. He's a kinesiology professor at the University of Western Ontario. He's written several articles on the recent Hockey Canada scandals plus the national uh, safe sport crisis uh, here in Canada. He joins us now. Uh, professor Ross, thank you for speaking to us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, a, a, a huge uh, and very important letter today that was sent to the Prime Minister. Uh, what prompted you to get the ball rolling on this whole endeavor? Uh, I guess uh, mostly uh, seeing the survivors uh, of abuse within the Canadian sports system struggling to to get some kind of meaningful change to occur. They've been going to parliamentary committees. They've been they've been staging activism of various kinds and I've kind of been following along online and I was just trying to figure out a way that professors could do something and scholars more broadly not just professors that could show some solidarity with them so that they they knew that um, there are people within academia that agree with them and agree there should be an independent inquiry and agree that this is not progressing the way we feel it should be that that there should be serious uh, investigations occurring deep into the sports system. Like this is a this is a system-wide failure. Setting up a, an office of the Sport Integrity Commissioner uh, isn't going to be enough to fix that, and we agree with them. And we wanted to make sure that they knew that and that we were here to support them mm-hmm. uh, in whatever way we could. And uh, we decided that uh, an open letter to the Canadian government was a good way to start. What got us here in your mind? Not just Hockey Canada, but many other sports as well. Mm-hmm. There's been, um, I mean, 2022, so many stories of athletes pointing to systemic failure, mental abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, um, all of it seemed to come to a head in 2022. How did we get here in your mind? I think uh, we we got um, tied up in the in the pursuit of victory, in the pursuit of medals, uh, and we, we lost sight that uh, lost sight of the fact that these are people. Um, they're not just uh, tools or pawns to be used by a, a nation uh, to make them look good on a national stage. They're not just, um, you know, uh, robots to be used to gain political advantage. They're they're people, and there's limits to what what they should have to endure. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, our system has been set up in a way where victory and and medal seeking has been prioritized over everything else. And and way back in 1989, at the Dublin Inquiry, I'm paraphrasing now because I don't have it in front of me, but Justice Dubbin said, you know, if if the only thing that matters is winning, then everything else is justifiable to get to that end. Uh, and it feels like we're right back there again, or that we never left there, that the Dublin Inquiry didn't really take us to a good place, or if it did, it didn't last very long. Hmm. Uh, do you think an inquiry, though, can change culture? Never mind 
those that need to be held accountable. But I mean a mm-hmm. deeper cultural change, not just on high-profile athletes uh, that have gone through abuse, but even, uh, let's say, the local hockey rink where parents yep. sometimes don't act like adults and, and do silly things sure. and abusive things, whether it be yelling at their own child or yelling at another child or abusing a ref, whatever it may be. Would an inquiry lead to that cultural change that some say is also required uh, on our pitches and our ice rinks and, and our fields? I, I think it's our best chance to to move the needle in that direction. To, to get to the underlying issues that are at play here, uh, we need a wide-ranging investigation. Um, we need to understand fully um, the breadth of the problem. Various reporting structures and things like that aren't going to fix it. They'll provide some solutions some of the time, um, but they're not going to create a situation in which um, we're actively trying to prevent the negative uh, outcomes that we're seeing. Um, so the abuse of athletes, whether that's physical, uh, mental, or sexual, uh, has become completely commonplace in Canadian sport. So if if we're going to try to um, diffuse that, we need to have a very open and honest investigation into what's going on. And I think it'll find that um, we, we've got a, a problematic relationship with sport in this country, not just at the elite level, but all the way down through. Uh, and we need to revisit um, what we're doing in terms of our funding structure, um, the ways we relate to sport in, in terms of our day-to-day lives. I mean, if, if sport is more important um, than school, if sport is more important uh, than our relationships, um, we're in very big trouble. And unfortunately, I think that has become the case a lot of the time, especially when you look at examples like in, like we're coming back to Hockey Canada here, but, you know, sending kids away at a very young age to go pursue their hockey dreams. There's nothing necessarily wrong with pursuing a dream of being a hockey player, but uh, that seems like you're putting sport before everything else. Um, and that that seems to be a recipe for disaster. What would you say to the argument that, uh, and, and I don't want to minimize these stories of abuse mm-hmm. and th- that we've been hearing about, but to have world-class athletes, it requires a culture of excellence and pushing athletes so they can be the best they can be. Uh, and when you look at other world uh, powers in sports, uh, that's part of their, you know, part of how those countries do very well. And I'm, I'm not saying let's not, let's emulate China. I'm not saying that. Sure. But we also need to be competitive. If we, if we wish to be competitive, uh, isn't that not part of, of, of training part of the broad culture is to you have to push athletes to be the best they can be. And sometimes these things do occur and I'm, I'm not condoning them, but I'm just saying there is also mm-hmm. a culture of pushing athletes so they can perform at that level against athletes from other countries. Well, I think that has to be, there, there's a fine line, I think, uh, that has to be drawn there. We can't be going to the lengths of, you know, putting young people through traumatic experiences because we hope that someday down the road that they'll be an elite athlete. The vast majority of young people are not going to be elite athletes, and even if they were going to be, it's never acceptable uh, to put them through traumatic situations like that. Um, so there is, it's not just Canada. I think that's an important part of that. this, and that's why there's, there is 17 um, professors from 17 other schools all globally. Uh, a lot of them uh, mention that, you know, we have this problem in our country too. And one of the the big challenges is that we're all linked through an international sporting culture uh, that prioritizes winning competition between nations. And and like you said, um, you know, the ability to be competitive on an international uh, global stage. And if if that's the priority, uh, which I think it will be for the foreseeable future, um, it, it creates a really difficult barrier to, you know, creating a sports system that prioritizes health and well-being when people are still striving to compete for, you know, limited funding, limited opportunities. Um, that's when this toxicity and this trauma is going to come into play and really start to get us stuck in this situation in for the long term. Um, we have to we have to change our relationship with international sport, and it's a it's a huge it's a huge task because. It's not just Canada. We would have to convince other people as well. 
um, and other other nations that uh, there can be competition and you know we can have international uh, relationships and uh, diplomacy and all those things through sport without um, this uh, traumatic uh, training of individuals to get them to the to the top um, of the sporting podium. Professor Ross, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed our conversation and look forward to having you on soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Mr. Polyev is back, and we were talking about housing specifically, uh, the, the province and the city of Vancouver saying they're doing their part. I want to chat with uh, Mr. Polyev a little bit about what he would do uh, if he is elected prime minister of this country. Mr. Polyev, let's go back to the original question. What would you do to help in regards to housing and affordability? Well, it starts with identifying the source of the problem. Um, after eight years of Trudeau, Vancouver has the third most overpriced housing in the world, and Canada as a whole is the second worst housing bubble on planet Earth, and that's because the central bank flooded the market with easy cash that bid up prices, and local government gatekeepers prevent construction from happening. Canada has the fewest houses per capita of any country in the G7, even though we have the most land to build on. Why, with all this land, do we have so few houses? Government gatekeepers add massive red tape costs. They make uh, massive delays, fees, development charges, consulting uh, uh, fees that builders have to pay. In Vancouver, the cost $650,000 goes just to government costs for every unit of housing. How do we fix that? Well, the city has to speed up and lower the cost of building permits and zoning. And I will ensure they do that because I'm going to link the amount of infrastructure money a big city gets to the number of houses that get built. I will pay only for results. That means houses that are turnkey complete. I'm also going to require cities to pre-approve high-density housing around every single federally funded transit station so that our young people can live right next to the bus or train. I'm also going to sell off uh, 15% of the 37,000 federal buildings, many of which were underutilized before COVID, but they're outright empty now that there's so much remote work. And finally, I'm going to create a new immigration stream to speed up uh, bringing in new people who have skills in home building. So that's the four-point plan. We're going to build 2 million houses, lower the costs, and our young people are going to have a place to live when Pierre Pauly had his prime minister. Now, CMHC says that we'll need about 5 million additional new housing units uh, to improve affordability. That would essentially be uh, double the current pace that we have now, and even you know a modest increase of 30 to 50% is still going to be challenged by our lack of labour. What makes you think your four-point plan can ha- make a dent on the issue of housing affordability? Because the government itself presently says we're going to spend $78 billion. And so far under Mr. Trudeau, house prices have uh, increased across the board here in Vancouver. What makes you think your four-point policy would work? Well, because we know that build it, we can build quickly when we get the government gatekeepers out of the way. And you know who proved it? The Squamish people. They have a big, I'm sorry, it's not a big piece of land. It's a 10-acre piece of land in which they approved six thousand units of housing and they're getting it built in record time now why were they able to get it done so fast because they didn't have to deal with city hall it's their land so they were freed from the government gatekeepers at vancouver city hall even though they're in vancouver because it's their land they've demonstrated that if you get the bureaucrats out of the way the Mm -hmm. building can happen we have workers we have investors we've got plenty of land you just need to get the bureaucracy out of the way and a polyev government is going to remove the gatekeepers, and open up the gates of opportunity for our young people, working class, and immigrants to own homes. And we'll be speaking to Hell Salem today at 5 o'clock, just on that Synod project uh, that uh, Mr. Polyev had mentioned. Let's talk about drug decriminalization. Congratulate him for me. Congratulate <laughs> him for me. That's what we need to do is what they've done. We need to do that everywhere. Think about this. They're building 600 units of housing on each acre. 
Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah, and it is. All the wonderful families that are going to be able to enjoy those those units because of their foresight. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, drug decriminalization for a second as well. The new law kicks in on January 31st. Basically, people in possession of two and a half grams of or less of fentanyl, heroin, morphine, crack and powder cocaine, methamphetamines, MDMA cannot be arrested or have their drugs seized. Uh, many people have said that this has this is the right way to go, including the former mayor uh, of Vancouver, Kennedy Stewart, who was on with us just last week. The exemption that has been provided uh, begins January 31st, expires on January 2026. Do you support a plan like that for British Columbia, Mr. Polyev? No, and, and let's face it, that plan has already been in place for about five years. Police haven't been arresting for possession for a very since about 2017, when Trudeau uh, and the NDP in BC started uh, told them to stop enforcing the law. And what is the result? We have a 300 percent increase in over overdose deaths. We have permanent line face first with on the pavement, dying of overdoses every single day. The NDP mayor Kennedy Stewart, the NDP government at a provincial level, and Justin Trudeau at a federal level have created an absolute drug overdose nightmare in B.C. and right across the country is a disaster. And in fact, it will be studied around the world as perhaps the worst policy ever implemented with respect to drugs. And there are countless 30,000 lives that have been lost because of these disastrous, radical, hard-left policies. The answer Mm -hmm. is to do what Alberta is doing, which is to put the money into recovery and treatment, get our people into a facility where they can get medications that reduce the pain and suffering of withdrawal, that we, we, we make sure we have widely available medications to reverse overdoses. And finally, we have inpatient beds where all-day care that includes counseling, um, camaraderie with fellow addicts, uh, preparing for jobs and opportunities when they get out of treatment, 90 days, uh, and then follow up when they get back out. That is what Alberta's doing. They've doubled the number of beds in the province, and they've cut in half the number of overdoses, and that's the policy of Polyev government will pursue. Mr. Polyev, final question to you. Uh, I want to talk to, to you about LNG, um, I, and I did at one point work for the LNG industry, and so I think it's an important one because it, it speak, speaks to the ability for us to build things in this country. Uh, when we first started talking about LNG, we had zero LNG um, facilities in this country, so did the United States. They now have seven that are built. They are looking at six more that they could either expand or build. We are still struggling through one with LNG Canada. There are smaller ones as well, but the real big one is LNG Canada. Europe, of course, is uh, talking about needing more LNG and natural gas to deal with uh, Russia. What would you do that's different, and would you do anything in regards to spurring further growth of uh, natural gas and LNG specifically? I'd get the government out of the way. When Trudeau took office, there were 15 proposed LNG export plants zero got completed. As you point out, the Americans built seven in that exact same time period. Uh, and the reason we can't get them built is because Trudeau's anti-energy law, C-69, makes it next to impossible to get all the permits. Uh, the money is private money will build this stuff because there's a huge return on investment. And the Asians and the Europeans are demanding it. In fact, both the Japanese prime minister and the German chancellor have come to meet with Trudeau in the last hundred days to beg for natural gas. And he said, you know what? Call Vladimir Putin instead. He'll provide you with the natural gas and then he can use the money to fund his wars. I would do the opposite. I would remove the anti-energy law C-69, rapidly approve projects that have buy-in from First Nations and that are environmentally responsible. We we have massive advantages in Canada because we're the short and Europe from North America. Our cold weather makes it cheaper to cool and liquefy the gas. And we have emissions-free hydroelectricity in B.C., Newfoundland, and Quebec that could power the liquefaction facilities without any greenhouse gases, making us the most environmentally responsible LNG manufacturers on planet Earth. And there's an enormous market for it. You know the Germans built an LNG import terminal in 194 days. In Canada, it takes almost a decade just to get the permits. So let's get the gatekeepers out of the way, get Justin Trudeau out of the way, build LNG, ship our energy abroad, 
to turn dollars for dictators into paychecks for our people in Canada. Time to bring it home. Mr. Paul, you have thanks for your time. Look forward to chatting with you next time you're in Vancouver. Thanks a lot. Great to be with you, Mr. Joe Hall. Bye now. Well, a public hearing is being held tonight to decide whether or not a swath of Surrey farmland should be protected by the B.C. government or stay in control of the federal government, which intends to turn it into uh, industrial land. Joining us now to talk about the issue is Tyler Heppel. He's a production manager at Heppel's Potatoes in Surrey. Tyler, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, let's uh, provide some background for the audience first and foremost. So this is a federal uh, controlled owned land. Your family uh, has been, uh, it's a 300 acre parcel, uh, and your family uh, has been uh, farming there for about 100 years or so? We've been farming, our farm has been around for 100 years. My grandpa started farming this land 50 years ago. He was able to turn it um, from marginal land that was way too sandy to mm-hmm. now some of the most productive farmland because of how sandy it is and well-drained. And y- you, you lease the land from the federal government? That's correct, yeah. And uh, you produce, uh, was it a significant amount of potatoes there? I was reading somewhere in, the, in, the, in this parcel of land, 300-acre parcel of land, 70% of BC's domestic potatoes? So 70% of the potatoes between May and August come from this land and that's why it's so important is every year the first potatoes in Canada come off of this land and it turns off Western Canada's reliance on California produce. Mm -hmm. Uh, And now when does your lease end with the the federal government in regards to this land? So right now it's on a year-to-year basis. They have told us that we can continue farming it until they are done the uh, divesting process. I see. And so their desire is still to sell it uh, uh, and for industrial land, or are they willing to, to, to talk to the province about moving this into the Agricultural Land Reserve, the ALR? Well, that's what tonight's all about. We're hoping that the Agricultural Land Commission can hear uh, food security experts, can even listen to land developers, but and also listen to the general public. But at the end of the day, we're hoping that they can understand that this piece of land is so crucial to food security here in British Columbia and Western Canada, and its highest value is to stay in agriculture and not be developed like all the area right around it. I'm sitting right now in the field, and I'm just looking across at industrial buildings um, that used to be good, productive farmland. Mm -hmm. And for our audience, uh, the location itself of the farm is at 192nd Street, uh, near 36th Avenue, so um, not too far from the Langley-Surrey border there. Um, it, how concerned are you? I mean, is it, how real do you think this is that the federal government would actually consider moving this farmland, productive farmland, as you say, to actually industrial land? Like, I don't doubt for a moment we need more industrial land. I think we've heard about this conversation over and over again. But I just don't see most Vancouverites and British Columbians remotely wanting to see productive farmland turned into an industrial park yeah that's a great question that's what all that's what tonight is about because at the end of the day the federal government can do what they want but i want our voices here in british columbia to be heard so loudly that they know that we are so passionate about keeping it in agricultural land because right now uh, it is zoned for mixed employment, if you look at the official community plan for Surrey. Mm-hmm. So if it does not get this ALR designation on it, it will be left uh, vulnerable to get developed right away. How much pressure is there to turn this into uh, industrial land uh, from uh, the development community? They'll tell you that it, it, we need more industrial land. I, like, I don't doubt that core argument. But how much pressure do you think there is to move this towards an industrial park? I mean, we've seen the the price of industrial land skyrocket. It's in the the millions per per acre. So, I mean, I'm not here today saying that I don't see that there's a need for industrial land. My question to everyone out there is, why would we develop our most productive farmland in all of Western Canada when there's other marginal land out there that can be just as good to put a, a slab of concrete over it? Mm-hmm. Speak to me about the work, uh, your family's work, and as you say, taking marginal land and making it a productive farmland. Speak to me a little bit about just the work that's, that you and your family have undertaken over the years. 
Yeah, so my dad tells stories of when he was younger. There was eight-foot bush all across this land. There was so many rocks. Um, you know, they used to try to grow, uh, like, wheat on it and three hot days, and everything would dry up. So our family has invested hundreds of thousands of dollars into um, uh, irrigation systems to make this the most pr- productive farmland. Uh, would you want to buy this land? I think... Uh, we're, I don't think we could buy this land. I think at the end of the day, what should happen to this land is just the federal government puts a covenant on this land that this land always stays in agriculture and it just gets le- leased out to some local farmers. Okay. And and why was, uh, you know, you've really been vocal about this and, and uh, especially on social media on this issue. What is the core that drives you? Uh, to, to be so, I mean, because farmers are busy farming. I mean, from sun up to sundown, there's always something to be doing, work work to be done on a farm. Uh, last thing you need to be doing is speaking to Jazz Joel or or being on social media. What at its core drives you? You know what drives me is I left the farm at 18 and I said I was never going to come back. I saw how hard my dad had to work. I saw my grandpa working in his 70s. I went to university, got a got a job. And after five years, I felt unsettled and didn't didn't feel any purpose. So I decided to come back to the farm here at 28. It's been about 11 months now. And I have found my absolute passion and purpose in farming. And I want others and I want to speak to the future generation of farmers out there. Um, it is hard farming, but it is worth it. And uh, I know that it can be discouraging seeing all this land being sold for industrial use. So that's why I'm standing up here. I'm Mm. standing up here for future generations of farmers to say, um, it is worth it, it is a battle, but we need you. Mm -hmm. So whether they're born yet or not, this land deserves to be farmed for the next 10 generations. Uh, what I mean, uh, you you said you found your your happiness in in farming. Uh, uh, I'm going to assume you're in the corporate world, uh, in the sort of white collar world before before this. Then in your, your years after university, yeah, I worked for a Fortune 500 company in sales, and I, I I loved it at the time. But I just you know you just hit a point where you just need some some vitamin D and you need to work with your hands and um this was just my calling for my life was to be a farmer all right and so tonight you're going to have uh farmers there uh do you have a long list of speakers then on this issue i mean this is before the commission right the agricultural land commission uh, it's not like it's a um, city hall or something like this can they make that decision tonight or will it take time i think they said it would take uh 3 weeks to about a month to make a to make a final decision um, but yeah, tonight we have um, politicians, you know, we have um, some food security experts, a bunch of profs. We, it's going to be a, a pretty um, packed full night. So I'm very excited for that. Well, I appreciate your time today, Tyler, and, and the passion in regards to uh, this particular subject that you have. We've covered a lot of a lot of stories on food security on this show. Uh, it is a passion of mine as well, and I think uh, the public, uh, I, 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 like we all need industrial land, like I said, but I think the idea of 300 uh, acres, uh, three acre, a 300-acre parcel being moved into industrial just doesn't pass the smell test for, for most Vancouverites. Thank you so much for your time. Look forward to hearing um, what transpires over the next few days. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Would you describe the emotions you're going through <laughs> right now? This might be a long press conference if I, if I do that. Uh, you know, I mean, it's you never know if it's the end. So when you've been in it for almost 50 years, the majority of your life, and if it's the end, it's I had to stay out there and just look at the crowd and just try to say, okay, remember this moment type thing. This is the Jazz Joe Hall Show on 980 CKNW. Hey, welcome back to the show. Well, after two seasons, seasons and a bit as head coach, Bruce Pedro was clipped by the Vancouver Canucks on Sunday. It was truly a masterclass on how not to fire an employee. And, uh, you know, there was an apology from Canucks president, Jim Rutherford, uh, to Mr. Boudreau for at least um, how the spectacularly they've mishandled uh, the process. But what happens moving forward? Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, the firing this weekend and the backlash from fans and the media as well is Squire Barnes, Global BC Sports Director and Anchor. Squire, thank you for joining us. 
No problem. So walk me through this. Uh, how bad was this in your mind? Well, it was pretty disgraceful. Um, I mean, you know, when a coach is going to get fired in any sport, a lot of times you kind of get the idea that it's going to go down. Let's go back to December of 2021, which is when Bruce Boudreaux got hired. We all knew we all knew Travis Green was not long as a Canucks coach, um, and it was quick. I mean, we knew he was going to get fired sooner or later, but when it happened, it happened fast, and Bruce Boudreaux was in. In this case, it was slow motion firing, and it, it really kind of stretched back to after last season when Jim Rutherford even though the Canucks had a good finish other, under Boudreaux, he said, well, the goalie kind of saved them lots of nights, which is true, and he didn't like the defensive structure. And then this season he kept, when he was getting interviewed, was basically bad-mouthing the way Bruce Boudreaux was coaching the team. And it just kept building up and building up, and then, of course, it leaked out that Rick Tockett was going to be the guy. So the final week before Bruce Boudreaux's firing was very uncomfortable. And it was the interesting thing about this, Jazz, is, We've seen lots of coaches get fired, mm-hmm. but I've never seen a situation like this where the crowd felt sorry for the coach and loves the coach, even though the team wasn't winning. It's a very different situation. It's actually quite interesting to, to have watched it because I've never really seen this before, at least with the Vancouver Canucks. He was so beloved by the fans because I think – about Bruce Boudreau, he's so open about his love for the game, and you can see the players liked him and liked playing for him. So the fact the fans began to look upon the team as the villain here, yeah. where often in this case, when a team is losing and a coach is about to be fired, the fans kind of want it to happen because they want new optimism with the new head coach. This is exactly the opposite. Uh, is Rutherford's job in jeopardy? And the reason I ask that, just because how poorly he's handled this. Not at the moment, it's not. Hmm. It's not at the moment. I, I mean, I, I mean, if if the Aquilini suddenly decided to blow up the management team, I mean, that would be even, as much as fans are mad at Rutherford, it would be like, what is going on here? Yeah. So for the time being, Rutherford, you know, still has slack on his rope. and But now he's on the clock, like every GM is in sports. Now you've got your guy, you've got the coach you want, so let's see what happens. What the interesting thing about this, just mm-hmm. very quickly, Jazz, is, is the Canucks are kind of in a no-win situation the rest of the way because fans in Vancouver and B.C. know hockey, and they know the season is lost. The playoffs are a long way away. It's out of reach pretty much. But they don't want to see the Canucks start winning a whole bunch of games and falling out of the Connor Bedard draft lottery. Yeah, that that gets me to our next question. Uh, some have said, look, Canucks seem to be in that sort of that mushy middle where either you spend a lot more money and, and buy a team, like a really good team, or, as you said, you, you don't do well and you don't do well for a few seasons and you, and you rack up all the draft picks that you want and need to rebuild in a, in a much more thoughtful, honest way rather than sort of what, where they're at right now. So is that assessment near or <laughs> remotely true? Well, they, at the moment, at this very moment, they're not, they're not in the mushy middle as far as the standings are right now. The Canucks right now are the sixth worst team in the NHL, which means if the season stopped right now, and when they hold the draft lottery, the Canucks would have a 7.5% chance of winning the lottery and thus getting the superstar from North Vancouver. So the, the odds are not great, but at least you're in the lottery. If you move outside of the bottom 11, then you have no chance in the lottery of winning first pick overall. You can only move up 10 spaces if you win the lottery. That's where the mushy middle is. And that's where, well, you didn't quite make the playoffs. You're not bad enough to get the top prospects. So it seems like you're kind of spinning your wheels. And that's what fans don't want to see. Well, Either you're a good playoff team or be bad enough to get a high draft pick. <laughs> there you go. Squire, thank you so much, my friend. No problem. All right. That is Squire Barnes, a Global BC Sports Director and Anchor, talking about the mishandling of uh, uh, Bruce Boudreaux's uh, departure. Uh, give me a call on the buzz line. would love to hear from you. What do you think of how the Vancouver Canucks 
handled uh, the firing of Boost Boudreaux. 604-331-2899. That's 604-331-2899. Now, I know we're hockey crazy in this country. We're Canuck crazy in this town. But every once in a while, you have to be uh, you have to be reminded that not everybody watches hockey and not everybody follows sports in Canada. Um, we have a, snor- a short snippet here from a Fox Five um, uh, newscaster uh, from Washington D.C., I believe, announcing the firing of Bruce Boudreau. Uh, take a listen. Former Washington Capitals coach Bruce Boudreaux has been fired by the Vancouver Canucks. The team announced the change Sunday, less than a week after president of hockey operations Jim Rutherford said major surgery was needed to fix the Canucks. Rick Tukid was hired as Boudreaux's replacement. (laughs) The Canucks? Rick Tockett, and I don't don't even think you got Bruce Boudreaux's name right there, but the Vancouver Canucks. Well, last month, the Squamish Nation uh, began uh, the process of creating their own education system. When I say began the process, well, they held a a vote, a referendum in their community. 87% of voters greenlit the proposal to begin a new education system. Now, to begin, you still have to negotiate with the federal provincial government, and much work is needed moving forward. But it was a critical first step. Now, historically, Canada's colonial leaders sought to eradicate Indigenous identities, languages, and cultures across the country and with the church as well. So now uh, the Squamish nation is beginning the slow step of claiming their education, reclaiming uh, their education system. It's just one of many changes and projects the Squamish First Nation are focusing on. It's from education to public safety to housing development. Joining me now to discuss the changes is Squamish Nation Council Chair, Hal Salem. Thank you for speaking to us today, Hal Salem. Thank you. Well, we've got lots to talk about. Uh, let's begin the conversation on a story that uh, came out just a few weeks ago, specifically in regards to the education system and the Squamish Nation's desire, desire to reclaim education. Um, walk me through what you would like to see as a member, as a leader, in regards to an, the education system on, for your people. The uh, vote we had in our community in December uh, gave us the overwhelming support and mandate to move forward with negotiating uh, educational jurisdiction with the federal and provincial government. And really what I think is going to be possible as we engage and take direction from the community is we'll be able to design our own education system. So just like you have a school board that oversees a number of schools uh, where they can set criteria around different types of courses that might be available at that school, we'll be able to do the same thing. Um, but it also means more than that. In the same way that the province can certify who can teach what courses, uh, we'll also be able to create our own certification system so that if teachers want to work in our school system, we'd actually have to go through our, our own accreditation in order to be able to teach certain courses. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that allows for us to design really unique curriculums, really unique teaching methodologies that are perhaps aligned with our traditional values and our traditional ways of teaching. We could incorporate Indigenous knowledge into the courses. And there's a lot of examples around the world in the United States and in Hawaii and New Zealand where, you know, you take something like science, and uh, there's uh, Indigenous-run schools in Hawaii where they go out in their canoes in the early morning out into the coral reefs and teach earth sciences to their students, but they do it through traditional canoeing and being out on the land. So there's lots of ways in which we can incorporate our Indigenous knowledge and combine it with you know, the provincial curriculum and the expectations that are needed in order to um, be able to be admitted into post-secondary, for example. So I think it opens up a lot of doors for us. So the agreements with the provincial and federal governments, that will come this year? Um, the next phase is we, we start working on developing our, our education law. Um, this is like an equivalent to an education act. It would apply to all of our on-reserve uh, schools and school systems, um, and we would work with the community to develop that and then eventually ratify that law. So there's going to be a lot of deep engagement, research, community engagement to understand what kind of courses or how we want to structure this as well as the governance. Do we want to completely copy sort of a Western model where we have school trustees that are elected by residents of an area or do we want to look at alternative models as well? So there'll be a lot of thinking and creativity that'll have to go into it and then eventually we'll ratify 
uh, our own education law. And then with that comes an agreement with the federal and provincial government to support financially the resources needed to in- implement that law. So uh, the the law itself uh, and then the process of a curriculum, process of textbooks, the process of a f- actual building uh, and the capital costs that come from that, this is still years away in regards to the your dream um, to move towards that dream of having an education system. But this is these are the early first steps. So eventually, you see, you see a physical structure, a school, actually, like we have in any other part of the province, yeah. and the teachers and, the, and all the processes that go with that. Yeah, we have a current school on our reserve that serves kindergarten to grade four, but we've also already started plans with a feasibility study, and we're now moving into a business case for expanding that school from uh, grade four all the way up to grade 12. And then we also have multiple communities and regions. So we have the North Shore region uh, where most of our people live, but we also have a number of families and community members that live in the Squamish Valley. And so we're going to start looking at uh, capital costs to build the school there. Of course, as you know, we're going to be building the Sanok development, which could have upwards of about 300 homes dedicated for Squamish families. So we'll need to think about how we're going to provide uh, education services to those families as well. So we'll start to expand over the years. And we're in the progress already of, of exploring what the cost might be for those types of structures. Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, hold off on Synod for a second. I do want to talk to you about development. But one of the other issues uh, in your community, quite quite interesting, is to my understanding, there's, there is, you're in the process of or have set up a public safety committee. Of course, uh, law and order and public safety have been forefront in the news uh, in, in non-First Nations communities and First Nations communities. Communities. What are you planning to achieve with that committee? Public safety has been a huge issue in the Squamish Nation for many years, just like I think it is in many other communities, and the issues aren't that different. You know, we have issues of violence or threats of violence. We have issues of a feeling of public safety through, you know, different types of acts that come into our community, especially, I think, as homelessness has risen and, and the, that desperation, I think, has, has risen over the years, especially through the pandemic with people trying to survive. And so, we have a lot of non-Squamish people coming into the community as well that are causing a lot of uh, feelings of un- unsafety. And so Council of the Squamish Nation has directed the creation of a public safety task force. It's comprised of a number of individuals who come from various backgrounds, whether it's law enforcement um, or public health and community services. And our goal is to come up with a report with a number of action steps that we would take to up- comp- build a a holistic approach to public safety and really start looking at what are the tools that we need to start developing so that we can enforce certain rules or expectations when it comes to on-reserve. The, the challenge that a lot of people don't know about is that on-reserve, um, because we're under the jurisdiction of the Federal Indian Act, there's not a lot of tools available to us to be able to enforce simple things like bylaws, for example. There are municipalities have bylaws, the province has their court system, the feds have its court system. We're really stuck, unable to enforce any of our own bylaws or our own rules and expectations. So, you know, I think it'll start to look at how do we reclaim jurisdiction in that area so that we actually have enforceable tools, mm-hmm. um, but also work with other law enforcement agencies. A good example of that is there's a growing movement in Canada to have uh, First Nations policing forces declared as a central service in, in federal law. Uh, there's a number of First Nations police forces across the country. There's only one in BC currently. There used to be more, but there's only one now. So we might look at, you know, actually building our own law enforcement agency as well. And what does it look like for a First Nation to actually control and have influence over its own law enforcement agency? And that might be a tool that we look at to help bring um, a Squamish way to enforcing rules, but also maintaining order and safety within a community. And and to confirm uh, with, with, from you, the, the issue of lawlessness or public safety, had, has that gotten worse during, because, uh, during or after COVID, or is this an issue that's been building many years prior? There's a, you know, there's a number of issues that happen in our community. Um, a lot of it stems from um, you know, I think a lot of unresolved trauma and trauma behavior and a lot of challenges there around mental health and things like that. I think it's also a lot to do with the economic situation a lot of families face themselves in. So, you know, there's things and issues in our community that, you know, it'll take a holistic approach to resolve. But we've definitely seen a few very violent incidents happen in the community that were very tragic and very um, um, challenging especially for the community. There's been a number of, of uh, shootings that have happened in, inside our community over the last 10 years. And some of those have come from various reasons um, and, and places. But it, I think 
really, it's there's two things. There's, you know, our approach is really looking at there's safety in terms of the outcome, but there's also the feeling of safety. And the feeling of safety is just as much as important as the outcome of safety. And we want to look at what are the ways in which the community will feel more safe and what are the ways we can actually bring more safety to the community and tools that are actually going to be effective at doing that. Let's talk a little bit about development and housing as well. I noticed recently uh, you had publicly stated that there's a 15-month moratorium on receiving unsolicited development proposals uh, for reserve land. Uh, Generally, uh, some would argue, does that slow down, perhaps hinder growth? My guess is that had that came from you because you probably have too much demand and too much coming at the, the Squamish First Nations in regards to development ideas. Uh, is that the case? Yeah, you know, so we're in an interesting environment. You know, we we own hundreds of acres of land on the North Shore and in Squamish. Uh, just as Squamish Nation alone, we also have lands that we partner with other First Nations on. But just in terms of Squamish Nation lands, our reserve lands, a lot of them are in prime uh, locations for potential real estate development. A number of them are going to be along rapid transit corridors as TransLink starts to make investments to and across Broad Inlet in the next 10 years. And there's also, uh, you know, a, a huge housing crisis right now. So what happens is our land is collectively owned. You know, it's, it's if we think of ourselves as a government, uh, this is all government-owned land, and a lot of it is either unimproved or underutilized right now. And so there's an opportunity to generate some wealth or some housing um, and some community amenities uh, for our community. And so we receive sometimes a lot of unsolicited proposals from other developers, other uh, business interests who come forward and they sort of say, hey, we think we know what we could do with your land. And the challenge is you receive these proposals and they're all kind of different, Mm -hmm. but not really the same. And so you can't really do a, a comparison on sort of this or that. And then part of it too is we also don't know what the land actually um, can sustain. Uh, We don't know what the current site uh, schematics are, the limitations are, whether it's environmental or utilities and things like that. So what staff really came forward with is they wanted to ask council for a mandate to put a moratorium in. We won't receive or look at any proposals from outside parties for a a number of a year or so. And while that happens, there'll be a concurrent process where our staff, uh, working with our Economic Development Corporation, we'll actually start to look at developing uh, strategies, uh, strategic land use plans for a number of high priority areas so that we can actually step back, make a plan, identify what the opportunity is and really look at highest and best use for those lands so that we can come back in a year with a clear vision of what could happen there. And then that way, if we want to bring in other development partners, we have a better sense of maybe what the value of the land could be what uh, kind of density the land could have, what kind of built form we might want to build there, what are the other opportunities that arise, and we'll be able to come forward with a much clearer vision, which I think will allow us to actually speed up the speed of of development in that sense. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Sinoc. That's the development project. I think it's 10.5 acres in total, uh, which is located at uh, uh, Kitts Point, adjacent to Vanier Park, just on the south side of the Broad Street Bridge. Um, uh, significant uh, development. I think it's the largest economic development for any First Nations in this province, never mind the country. Uh, give me a sense of where you are in that proposal because it will fundamentally reshape the skyline in many ways for, for Vancouver as well. Where are we in regards to that development? Yeah, we're, uh, we're well underway on construction of Phase 1. Um, and so a lot of the ground disturbance and movement of the earth has happened. Um, we're about to enter into construction on phase two out of four. Um, we'll be going to tender on most of the prime contracts soon for, uh, soon for that. And then while that's happening, we're also completing work on the design, final designs for phase three and four, and then eventually uh, working towards uh, construction on those. So a lot of infrastructure construction at this point. Um, but not any cranes or anything like that yet. We have to build in all the sewage and hydro uh, utilities. Separate from that process, the city of Vancouver in the spring will also be launching their own engagement process with the wider community and the neighboring communities around all of the infrastructure changes that will be coming to the neighborhood. There's a number of proposed uh, infrastructure changes like um, road changes, bike lanes, uh, uh, bus and uh, transit connections. And all of those things happen on the adjacent lands that are within the city of Vancouver's jurisdiction. So they're going to engage in their own public uh, process to engage the community and share updates on those designs and solicit feedback through that process. Um, And then eventually there'll be some changes that come to help align with uh, what's happening um, 
um, in, in around the area. So well underway, but uh, more work to do. Um, and it, it is getting exciting. We're seeing a lot of our, our people being able to work on the project and uh, we're continuing to sort of refine some of the ground plane design and what the sort of amenities on the site are going to look like. How many buildings will we see in the first phase? Uh, first phase is three buildings, and then the next phase is another four, and then there's a two, and then a two. I think altogether is 12 buildings altogether, including one uh, office commercial space. The the first phase, uh, when will we see it uh, com- uh, completed in the sense that the building's done and it's up and it's renting out? When would that be? Is that still about three or four years away then? I would say about uh, about two or so years away before we see the first occupancy. It d- depends on a few factors, but um, one of the challenges is, of course, all the construction costs and the inflation uh, impacts there. And so we're sort of, in some ways, waiting for some things to come down on price. Other times, we're moving very quickly because we don't want the price to go up too much more. So there's a little bit of a, a strategy uh, behind the scenes on that. So. It depends on a lot of those factors, but we're hoping within the next couple of years. Were you surprised by the pushback? Uh, residents in Vancouver saying it's too big for the area, uh, that you do you haven't uh, got, uh, I guess, the term social license from the neighborhood, um, all of those things, and to write down to, uh, you know, uh, is there enough parking, all, all those kind of amenities and things that people are expecting. Uh, were, you ex- uh, were you surprised by the pushback? No, I think that one of the challenges that we have anytime we're doing you know, development of new neighborhoods, new communities, especially in the Vancouver context, is that um, there's always the interests of the people that are sort of living there and around the area at the time of the development. But then there's also the reality of what happens once people move in. And we've seen this time and time again throughout a number of neighborhoods that once those future residents, you know, they're really, if we can think of them as future neighbors, uh, they move in, they start to tell the story of how grateful they are to have housing, um, how beautiful and wonderful that community is. And I think of places like the West End, that when it was first built, you know, faced similar types of criticisms, but today is regarded as one of Vancouver's best neighborhoods. There's a whole number of other places in Vancouver that are like that. So I think that it's understandable. There's definitely, con- re- you know, reasonable to have concerns and questions about how it might impact uh, their lives or their families' lives. But at the same time, there is just the fact that we do need to build a lot of housing in this uh, city. And there's kind of two ways to do it. One is we build towers and build up, or we densify across the board and allow for six, seven stories in more neighborhoods than just certain areas. But right now, um, I think most Vancouverites seem to prefer this sort of Vancouver model where we build towers next to single detached houses. But, so it's always about trade-offs. And I think that our development once built is really going to bring a lot of value to the neighborhood and to the community. Uh, and I think it'll be celebrated for what it's set out to, to, to achieve and what it ultimately achieved. Hell Salem, thank you so much for your time today, my friend. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.